Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. sleep stories, and other news, subscribe to this newsletter at snoozecast.com. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by Signet Ranks. Tonight, we'll read the conclusion to The Man with the Twisted Lip from The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, written by Arthur Conan Doyle. The first part of this story originally aired on July 24th, 2020, and we rebroadcast it yesterday. In the first part, a friend of Dr. Watson's wife comes to Watson's house concerned because her husband, who is addicted to opium, has gone missing. While Watson is helping to retrieve the husband, he is surprised to find that Sherlock Holmes is there too, in disguise and trying to get information to solve a different case about a man who has disappeared. Watson stays to listen to Holmes tell the story of the case of Neville St. Clair. St. Clair is a prosperous, respectable, punctual man his family's home is in the country, but he visits London every day on business. One day, when Mr. St. Clair was in London, Mrs. St. Clair also went to London separately. She happened to pass down an alleyway. This is where we will pick up. 
Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Holmes continued to Watson. If you remember, Monday was an exceedingly hot day, and Mrs. St. Clair walked slowly, glancing about in the hope of seeing a cab, as she did not like the neighborhood in which she found herself. While she was walking in this way, down Swandam Lane, she suddenly heard a cry and was struck cold to see her husband looking down at her and, as it seemed to her, beckoning to her from a second-floor window. The window was open, and she distinctly saw his face, which she describes as being terribly agitated. He waved his hands frantically to her, and then vanished from the window suddenly. Convinced that something was amiss with him, she rushed down the steps, for the house was none other than the opium den in which you found me tonight. At the foot of the stairs, however, she met the scoundrel of a den owner, of whom I have spoken, who thrust her back. Filled with the most maddening doubts, she rushed down the lane and, by rare good fortune, met a number of constables with an inspector, all on their way to their beat. The inspector and two men accompanied her back, and in spite of the continued resistance of the proprietor, they made their way to the room in which Mr. St. Clair had last been seen. There was no sign of him there. In fact, in the whole of that floor, there was no one to be found save a wretched man who, it seems, made his home there. The rooms were carefully examined, and results all pointed to a crime. The front room was plainly furnished as a sitting room and led into a small bedroom which looked out upon the back of one of the wharves. Thrust away behind a curtain in the front room were all the clothes of Mr. Neville St. Clair with the exception of his coat. And now as to the villains who seemed to be immediately implicated in the matter, the opium den owner could hardly have been more than one accessory to the crime. His defense was one of absolute ignorance, and he protested that he had no knowledge as to the doings of Hugh Boone, his lodger. So much for the opium den manager. 
Now for the character with the scarred face, who lives upon the second floor of the opium den, and who was certainly the last human being whose eyes rested upon Neville St. Clair. His name was Hugh Boone, and his face is one which is familiar to every man who goes much to the city. He is a professional beggar. Here it is that this creature takes his daily seat, cross-legged, and as he is a piteous spectacle, a small rain of charity descends into the greasy leather cap which lies upon the pavement beside him. His appearance, you see, is so remarkable that no one can pass him without observing him. A shock of orange hair, a pale face disfigured by a scar, which by its contraction has turned up the outer edge of his upper lip, a bulldog chin, and a pair of very penetrating dark eyes, which present a singular contrast to the color of his hair. All mark him out from amid the common crowd, and so too does his wit, for he is ever ready with a reply to any piece of chaff which may be thrown at him by the passer-by. This is the man whom we now learn to have been the lodger at the opium den, and to have been the last man to see the gentleman of whom we are in quest. Holmes paused to check if Watson was following the story. Pray, continue your narrative, replied his friend. Very well. Mrs. St. Clair was escorted home in a cab by the police, as her presence could be of no help to them in their investigations. Inspector Barton, who had charge of the case, made a very careful examination of the premises but without finding anything which threw any light upon the matter. And they did find something at the river, though they hardly found upon the mud bank what they had feared it to find. It was Neville St. Clair's coat, and not Neville St. Clair, which lay uncovered as the tide receded. And what do you think they found in the pockets? I cannot imagine. No, I don't think you would guess. Every pocket stuffed with pennies and half pennies. 421 pennies and 270 half pennies. It seemed likely enough that the weighted coat had remained when the stripped body had been sucked away into the river. But I understand that 
all the other clothes were found in the room. Would the body be dressed in a coat alone? Well, we will take it as a working hypothesis for want of a better. I confess that I cannot recall any case within my experience which looked at the first glance so simple and yet which presented such difficulties. While Sherlock Holmes had been detailing this singular series of events, we had been whirling through the outskirts of the great town until the last straggling houses had been left behind, and we rattled along with a country hedge upon either side of us. Just as he finished, however, we drove through two scattered villages where a few lights still glimmered in the windows. Said my companion, See that light among the trees? Beside that lamp sits a woman whose anxious ears have already, I have little doubt, caught the clink of our horse's feet. But why are you not conducting the case from Baker Street? I asked. Because there are many inquiries which must be made out here. Mrs. St. Clair has most kindly put two rooms at my disposal, and you may rest assured that she will have nothing but a welcome for my friend and colleague. I hate to meet her, Watson, when I have no news of her husband. Here we are. Whoa there. Whoa. We had pulled up in front of a large villa which stood within its own grounds. As we approached, the door flew open and a little blonde woman stood in the opening. She stood with her figure outlined against the flood of light, one hand upon the door, one half raised in her eagerness, her body slightly bent, her head and face protruded with eager eyes and parted lips. A standing question. Well, she cried, no good news? None. No bad? No. Thank God for that. But come in. You must be weary, for you have had a long day. This is my friend, Dr. Watson. I am delighted to see you, said she, pressing my hand warmly. You will, I am sure, forgive anything that may be wanting in our arrangements when you consider the blow which has come so suddenly upon us. My dear madam, said I, if I can be of any assistance, either to you or to my friend here, I shall indeed be happy. Now, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said the lady, as we entered a well-lit dining room upon the table of which a cold supper had been laid out, I should very much like to ask you one or two plain questions, to which I beg that you will give a plain answer. Certainly, madam. Do not trouble 
about my feelings. I am not hysterical, nor given to fainting. I simply wish to hear your real, real opinion. Upon what point? In your heart of hearts, do you think that Neville is alive? Sherlock Holmes seemed to be embarrassed by the question. Frankly now, she repeated, standing upon the rug and looking keenly down at him as he leaned back in a basket chair. Frankly then, madam, I do not. You think that he is dead? I do. And on what day did he meet his death? Monday. Then perhaps, Mr. Holmes, you will be good enough to explain how it is that I have received a letter from him today. Sherlock Holmes sprang out of his chair as if he had been galvanized. What? He roared. Yes. Today. She stood, smiling, holding up a slip of paper in the air. May I see it? Certainly. He snatched it from her in his eagerness, and smoothing it out upon the table, he drew over the lamp and examined it intently. Course writing, murmured Holmes. Surely this is not your husband's writing, madam. No, but the enclosure is. I perceive also that whoever addressed the envelope had to go and inquire as to the address. How can you tell that? The name, you see, is in perfectly black ink, which has dried itself. The rest of it is of a grayish color, which shows that blotting paper has been used. If it had been written straight off and then blotted, none would be of a deep black shade. This man has written the name, and there has then been a pause before he wrote the address, which can only mean that he was not familiar with it. It is, of course, a trifle, but there's nothing so important as trifles. Let us now see the letter. Huh, there has been an enclosure here. Yes, there was a ring, his signet ring. And you are sure that this is your husband's hand? One of his hands. One? His hand when he wrote hurriedly. It is very unlike his usual writing, and yet I know it well. Dearest, do not be frightened. All will come well. There is a huge error which it may take some little time to rectify. Wait in patience. Neville. Written in pencil 
upon the flyleaf of a book. Octavo sighs. No watermark. Hmm. Posted today in Gravesend by a man with a dirty thumb. Huh. And the flap has been gummed. If I am not very much in error by a person who had been chewing tobacco. And you have no doubt that this is your husband's hand, madam? None. Neville wrote those words. Huh. And they were posted today at Gravesend. Well, Mrs. St. Clair, the clouds lighten, though I should not venture to say that the danger is over. But he must be alive, Mr. Holmes. Unless this is a clever forgery to put us on the wrong scent. The ring, after all, proves nothing. It may have been taken from him. No. No. No, it is. It is his very own writing. Very well. It may, however, have been written on Monday and only posted today. That is possible. If so, much may have happened between. Well, you must not discourage me, Mr. Holmes. I have seen too much not to know that the impression of a woman may be more valuable than the conclusion of an analytical reasoner. But, if your husband is alive and able to write letters, why should he remain away from you? I cannot imagine. It is unthinkable. And on Monday, he made no remarks before leaving you. No. And you were surprised to see him in Swandam Lane. Very much so. And you thought he was pulled back. He disappeared so suddenly. He might have leaped back. You did not see anyone else in the room. No. But this horrible man confessed to having been there and the den owner was at the foot of the stairs. Quite so. Your husband, as far as you could see, had his ordinary clothes on. But without his collar or tie, I distinctly saw his bare throat. Had he ever spoken of Swandam Lane? Never. Had he ever showed any signs of having taken opium? Never. Thank you, Mrs. St. Clair. Those are the principal points about I wished to be absolutely clear. We shall now have a little supper and then retire, for we may have a very busy day tomorrow. A large and comfortable double-bedded room had been placed at our disposal, and I was quickly between the sheets, for I was tired after my night of adventure.
Sherlock Holmes was a man, however, who, when he had an unsolved problem upon his mind, would go for days, and even for a week, without rest, turning it over, rearranging his facts, looking at it from every point of view until he had either fathomed it or convinced himself that his data were insufficient. It was soon evident to me that he was now preparing for an all-night sitting. He took off his coat and waistcoat, put on a large blue dressing gown, and then wandered about the room collecting pillows from his bed and cushions from the sofa and armchairs. He perched himself cross-legged with an ounce of shag tobacco and a box of matches laid out in front of him. In the dim light of the lamp, I saw him sitting there, an old briar pipe between his lips upon the corner of the ceiling. The blue smoke curling up from him, silent, motionless, with the light shining upon his strong set features. So he sat as I dropped off to sleep, and I found the summer sun shining into the apartment when I woke up. The pipe was still between his lips, the smoke still curled upward, and the room was full of a dense tobacco haze, but nothing remained of the heap of shag which I had seen upon the previous night. Awake, Watson? he asked. Yes. Game for a morning drive? Certainly. Then dress. No one is stirring yet, but I know where the stable boy sleeps, and we shall soon have the trap out. He chuckled to himself as he spoke. His eyes twinkled, and he seemed a different man to the somber thinker of the previous night. As I dressed, I glanced at my watch. It was no wonder that no one was stirring. It was twenty-five minutes past four. I had hardly finished when Holmes returned with the news that the boy was putting in the horse. I want to test a little theory of mine, said he, pulling on his boots. I think, Watson, that you are now standing in the presence of one of the most absolute fools in Europe. But... I think I have the key of the affair now. And where is it? I asked, smiling. In the bathroom, he answered. Oh yes, I am not joking. He continued seeing my look of incredulity. We made our way downstairs as quietly as possible and out into the bright morning sunshine. A few country carts were stirring, bearing in vegetables to the metropolis, but the lines of villas on either side were as silent and lifeless 
as some city in a dream. It has been in some points a singular case, said Holmes, flicking the horse on into a gallop. I confess that I have been as blind as a mole, but it is better to learn wisdom late than never to learn it at all. In town, the earliest risers were just beginning to look sleepily from their windows as we drove through the streets of the Surrey side. Who was on duty? asked Holmes. Inspector Bradstreet, sir. Ah, Bradstreet, how are you? A tall, stout official had come down the stone-flagged passage in a peaked cap and a frogged jacket. I wish to have a quiet word with you, Bradstreet. Certainly. What can I do for you, Mr. Holmes? I called about that beggarman, Boone, the one who is charged with being concerned in the disappearance of Mr. Neville St. Clair of Lee. Yes, he was brought up and remanded for further inquiries. So I heard. You have him here? In the cells? Is he quiet? Oh, he gives no trouble. But he is a dirty scoundrel. Dirty? Yes, it is all we can do to make him wash his hands. Well, when once his case has been settled, he will have a regular prison bath. And I think... If you saw him, you would agree with me. He needs it. I should like to see him very much. Would you? That is easily done. Come this way. You can leave your bag. No, I think that I'll take it. Very good. Come this way, if you please. He led us down a passage opened a barred door, passed down a winding stair, and brought us to a whitewashed corridor with a line of doors on each side. The third on the right is his, said the inspector. Here it is. He quietly shot back a panel in the upper part of the door and glanced through. He's asleep, said he. You can see him very well. We both put our eyes to the grating. The prisoner lay with his face towards us in a very deep sleep, breathing slowly and heavily. He was, as the inspector had said, extremely dirty, but the grime which covered his face could not conceal its repulsive ugliness. A broad wheel from an old scar ran right across it from eye to chin, and by its contraction had turned up one side of the upper lip, so that three teeth were exposed in a perpetual snarl. 
shock of very bright red hair grew low over his eyes and forehead. He's a beauty, isn't he? said the inspector. He certainly needs a wash, remarked Holmes. I had an idea that he might, and I took the liberty of bringing the tools with me. He opened the Gladstone bag as he spoke and took out, to my astonishment, a very large bath sponge. <laughs> you are a funny one, chuckled the inspector. Now, if you will have the great goodness to open that door very quietly, we will soon make him cut a much more respectable figure. Well, I don't know why not, said the inspector. He doesn't look like a credit to Bow Street cells, does he? He slipped his key into the lock, and we all very quietly entered the cell. The sleeper half turned and then settled down once more into a deep slumber. Holmes stooped to the water jug, moistened his sponge, and then rubbed it twice vigorously across and down the prisoner's face. Let me introduce you, he shouted, to Mr. Neville St. Clair of Lee in the county of Kent. Never in my life have I seen such a sight. The man's face peeled off under the sponge like the bark from a tree. Gone was the coarse brown tint. Gone, too, was the scar which had seamed it across and the twisted lip which had given the repulsive sneer to the face. A twitch brought away the tangled red hair and there, sitting up in his bed, was a pale, sad-faced, refined-looking man, black-haired and smooth-skinned, rubbing his eyes and staring about with sleepy bewilderment. Then, suddenly realizing the exposure, he threw himself down with his face to the pillow. Great heavens, cried the inspector. It is indeed the missing man. I know him from the photograph. The prisoner turned with the reckless air of a man who abandons himself to his destiny. Be it so, said he. And pray, what am I charged with? making away with Mr. Neville St. Oh, come, you can't be charged with that, said the inspector with a grin. Well, I have been 27 years in the force, but this really takes the cake. If I am Mr. Neville St. Clair, then it is obvious that no crime has been committed, and that 
Therefore, I am illegally detained. No crime, but a very great error has been committed, said Holmes. You would have done better to have trusted your wife. It was not the wife. It was the children, groaned the prisoner. God help me. I would not have them ashamed of their father. My God. What an exposure. What can I do? Sherlock Holmes sat down beside him on the couch and patted him kindly on the shoulder. If you leave it to a court of law to clear the matter up, said he, of course you can hardly avoid publicity. On the other hand, if you convince the police authorities that there is no possible case against you, I do not know that there is any reason that the details should find their way into the papers. Inspector Bradstreet would, I am sure, make notes upon anything which you might tell us and submit it to the proper authorities. The case would then never go into court at all. God bless you, cried the prisoner passionately. I would have endured imprisonment rather than have left my miserable secret as a family blot to my children. You are the first to have ever heard my story. I traveled in my youth, took to the stage, and finally became a reporter on an evening paper in London. One day my editor wished to have a series of articles upon begging in the metropolis and I volunteered to supply them. There was the point from which all my adventures started. It was only by trying begging as an amateur that I could get the facts upon which to base my articles. When an actor, I had, of course, learned all the secrets of making up and had been famous in the green room for my skill. I painted my face, and to make myself pitiable as possible, I made a good scar and fixed one side of my lip in a twist by the aid of a small slip of flesh-colored plaster. For seven hours I plied my trade. I wrote my articles and thought little more of the matter until... Some time later, I backed a bill for a friend and had a writ served upon me for twenty-five pounds. I was at my wit's end, where to get the money, but a sudden idea came to me. In ten days, I had the money and had paid the debt. Well... You can imagine how hard it was to settle down to arduous work at two pounds a week 
when I knew that I could earn as much in a day by smearing my face with a little paint, laying my cap on the ground, and sitting still. Only one man knew my secret. He was the keeper of a low den in which I used to lodge in Swandam Lane, where I could every morning emerge as a squalid beggar, and in the evenings transform myself into a well-dressed man about town. This fellow, a den owner, was well paid by me for his rooms, so that I knew my secret was safe in his possession. Well, very soon I found that I was saving considerable sums of money. I do not mean that any beggar in the streets of London could earn 700 pounds a year, which is less than my average takings. But I had exceptional advantages in my power of making up which improved by practice and made me quite a recognized character in the city. All day a stream of pennies, varied by silver, poured in upon me, and it was a very bad day in which I failed to take two pounds. As I grew richer, I grew more ambitious, took a house in the country, and eventually married, without anyone having a suspicion as to my real occupation. My dear wife knew that I had business in the city. She little knew what. Last Monday, I had finished for the day, and was dressing in my room above the opium den. When I looked out of my window, and saw to my astonishment that my wife was standing in the street with her eyes fixed full upon me. I gave a cry of surprise, threw up my arms to cover my face, and rushing to my confidant, the den owner, entreated him to prevent anyone from coming up to me. I heard her voice downstairs but I knew that she could not assent. Swiftly, I threw off my clothes, pulled on those of a beggar, and put on my pigments and wig. But then it occurred to me that there might be a search in the room, and that the clothes might betray me. I threw open the window, then I seized my coat which was weighted by the coppers, which I had just transferred to it from the leather bag in which I carried my takings. I hurled it out of the window, and it disappeared into the Thames. The other clothes would have followed, but at that moment there was a rush of constables up the stair and a few minutes after I found, rather I confess, to my relief, 
that instead of being identified as Mr. Neville St. Clair, I was arrested as his murderer. I do not know that there is anything else for me to explain. I was determined to preserve my disguise as long as possible, and hence my preference for a dirty face. That note you sent only reached your wife yesterday, said Holmes. Good God, what a week she must have spent. The police have watched this den owner, said Inspector Bradstreet, and I can quite understand that he might find it difficult to post a letter unobserved. Probably he handed it to some sailor customer of his, who forgot all about it for some days. That was it, said Holmes, nodding approvingly. I have no doubt about it. But have you never been prosecuted for begging? Many times. But what was a fine to me? It must stop here, however, said Bradstreet. If the police are to hush this thing up, there must be no more of Hugh Boone. I have sworn to it by the most solemn oaths which a man can take. In that case, I think that it is probable that no further steps may be taken. But if you are found again, then all must come out. I wish I knew how you reach your results. I reached this one, said my friend, by sitting upon five pillows and consuming an ounce of shag. I think, Watson, that if we drive to Baker Street, we shall just be in time for breakfast.